Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Uh, for this week's show, we'll be looking at development of science and technology in today's world. I'm Lynn Lee. I'm Gordon Campbell, and also joining us on today's show will be David Goodstein talking to us about the dwindling oil supply. I'm Justin Hall, and I want to know what LASER stands for. Later, we'll all find out. Stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week here Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. And I'm Lynn Lee. And I'm Gordon Campbell. How's everyone doing? Looks like we're doing good. How's it going today? Pretty hot. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like it's, we're joined by Justin Hall today in the uh, in the studio, and uh, Justin's going to join us to uh, discuss some issues uh, regarding his work, we presume. Yes, my work. <laughs> we presume. Work. Do you actually work? Um, I wouldn't call it work. I think what I do is I spend about 20 hours of the day amusing myself and then about four hours a day typing feverishly. So you don't sleep at all? Um, only sometimes. That's part of stimulating myself. <laughs> the work that I do, I guess, would be called freelance writing, although I also give talks and edit and talk, help people with projects and build websites. So I'm sort of freelance, digital, creative person. Well, that's pretty exciting. So uh, what kind of uh, freelance work have you done this far? I've done quite a wide range of projects. I guess when people say, what do you do? I say, whatever people pay me to do. So um, I've written very short video game reviews for Yoga Journal and for Scuba Diving Magazine. I've written a profile of Slashdot, the website for Rolling Stone Magazine. I've written um, a lot of articles about mobile phones and technology in Japan for websites like thefeature.com, which focus on mobile technology issues. I write about games. I write about mobile phones. I write about the internet for money. Then I write about anything else for pleasure, and I've written about my life and what I do, and that's what got me into freelancing. Cool. And uh, what do you find most stimulating? Sex. I'm currently researching um, sort of how technology and sex overlap. So I'm looking at sort of ways in which instead of interacting with people in real life, I turn to computers for erotic sorts of stimulation. And then I'm also researching how people around the world expect to use things like uh, the Internet and mobile phones to meet other people and find fulfillment in, in, in erotic 
and sort of relationship ways. Hasn't there been a lot of issues about technology actually hindering relationships since this create barriers between people? I think that's sort of an old world perception. For example, you look at like EverQuest players and people would say those people are sort of dialing out on real life because they sit there at their computers and they're interacting in virtual environments. But those people have a certain sort of community that they interact with online and some of them do find romantic fulfillment through that community of EverQuest players. Although perhaps EverQuest is not the best example of romantic fulfillment on the internet. But I think um, increasingly what you find is people of all walks, genders, creeds, shapes are coming to the internet, and when they come there, they expect to find very basic human needs fulfilled. Wow, so that'd be cool. I feel fortunate to be sometimes paid to look at these things. So it seems like um, besides this, um, you've written a lot about technical issues. So do you have a technical background? My mother got a computer for my family when I was seven and hired a local geek to come teach me how to program and how to use it. I didn't really do very well with that, but I did enjoy all the games that he brought over. So <laughs> I played an enormous amount of games until I was about 14. I got a job at a software store selling games. I, had, I needed a state work permit to work when I was that young. And what I soon discovered is that people who came to the store would pay me to come to their house and install software. Then once I got to college, I discovered I had been using the internet on and off since 1988. When I went to college, I was able to, I found the World Wide Web, which was just coming out popularly in 1993. And so in 1994, I started, I put up a website in January of that year and just started writing about what I found on the internet. And because at that time, there were no search engines. You could search the entire internet in about two weeks. You know, you could see everything that was out there. It, was, it grew in ways that you could keep track of. And so I would just keep track of the way it was growing and, and write about the funny things that I found. And I got a lot of positive feedback from people saying, wow, you know, I had no other way of knowing what was on the Internet. And I used that, this website that I built up, to get myself a job at Wired Magazine. And at Wired Magazine, I was one of a group of people who were very much familiar with the web and how to publish on the web. My first website was served using a homebrew, not my homebrew, but someone else's homebrew HTTP server on a PowerBook. You know, so you couldn't really just go to GeoCities <laughs> and put something up. You had to work it yourself. That's my sort of technical background. And I've always been a, my eagerness to publish has driven me to keep up with technology. I've been able to help a lot of very interesting writers and artists and companies set up their websites because I knew how to do it for myself. Thanks for coming and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. Sure. So I've never been much of a fan of mucus, but apparently it does have its purposes. Well, I thought, I thought it was just to uh, you know help clean your nose. Apparently scientists have been studying the Great Barrier Reef um, in Australia and have found that coral on the reef can exude up to 4.8 liters of mucus per day. 4.8, that's me on a slow, uh, you know, weak flow day, actually. <laughs> yeah, that would be a, a pretty bad cold for me, actually. <laughs> the goo keeps the coral from drying out and protects it from, from infection and also keeps the nutrients being recycled on the reef. So is this mucus the same type of mucus found in humans? Isn't it all like oligosaccharides and stuff like that? I mean, I would imagine it's a different oligosaccharide. Than I think it's just whatever gets caught in there that happens to be <laughs> <laughs> the major constituents of it. I don't know if it goes into exactly what the mucus is. Unknown to local authorities thus far. 
the human coral mucus yeah, link. Yeah, has large mats of undissolved slime. <laughs> no word yet from the Kleenex company. Well, I think they're missing out on a big customer there in the uh, <laughs> coral reef community. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure what you know what sort of chemical analysis they've done on this mucus. Well, if people want to learn more about this, where can they look? There's a there's a, there's a News and Views article in uh, Science Magazine this week. Has anyone ever had an electrocardiogram? Does anyone know what an electrocardiogram <laughs> is? <laughs> my, doc- my doctor heard a clicking in my heart this year during my physical and told me I'm going to have to get one. So, oh. uh, Is that one of those uh, also part of the Internet uh, sexual experience? <laughs> <laughs> so electrocardiogram, or otherwise known as ECG. Right now, there are some uh, German researchers that are developing electronic underwear Basically, portable ECGs to monitor vital signs for people and are also able to call emergency services where when it's needed. Can these things stimulate as well as record? Um, I, I would hope they could also monitor the state of my bowels as well. <laughs> wow. So this is um, a system that's being developed by Philips Research Facilities in Germany. And, right. <laughs> well, it's it's like smart underwear. It is. It's definitely smart underwear. Yeah. And what's very nice about this is that you can actually take out the control unit and, you know, wash your <laughs> these clothing. That is a useful feature. Yeah, it's a useful feature. So, but unfortunately, um, your undergarment has to be pretty tight because the control unit has to be in contact with your skin. So, um, yeah, and it, they, what they do is they use a new type of dry electrode to make the sensor fabric appear to have a resistance to current than the skin. So just just where exactly does this electrode go? <laughs> to well, maximize galvanic skin response. <laughs> It's undergarment, right? <laughs> Before they, um, well, currently there's portable ECGs, and those portable ECGs require electrodes to actually be stuck into the person's skin. Mm-hmm. This one actually just needs to be in contact with the skin, so it's actually a much more friendlier method. Cool. So if uh, people want to pick one of these things up or uh, learn more about it, where can they go? So you can find um, more information about it in uh, Nature. All right, well, I think we should have actually probably ended on the uh, butt uh, cardiac monitor there. But <laughs> I think uh, what would be better than that than uh, actually being infected with some viruses? Ooh, that's not very, uh, not very clean, I guess. <laughs> well, it's one of, the, one of the great things. Would you like to be infected with some viruses? Only if they can cure my other diseases, I guess. Uh, it's odd that you say that because apparently one can. Really? So there's a virus called GB virus C. Remember that name? It mm-hmm. apparently will protect certain uh, types of males against HIV. Yes. So it's quite an interesting uh, finding that was uh, discovered and reported in the uh, March 4th issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, a bunch of virologists were uh, interested in um, why certain men who were infected with this uh, virus actually seem to have uh, less of a chance of actually developing more of the disease of HIV. Wow, so of a resistance. 
<laughs> no, apparently, apparently it's a common uh, virus that just sort of exists in nature, and normally it has very little response or ability in terms of actually affecting normal people. But in normal organ or in affected men, it actually prevents the uh, spread of the disease. So what about women? They didn't test women because uh, they didn't have uh, the blood samples from women. They actually did the study on a bunch of men. Uh, but of course, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's the malocentric science uh, <laughs> science uh, establishment. But in fact, it's quite interesting, and uh, Viraj uh, Donald Mosier of the Scripps Institute in La Jolla says it's uh, quite a provocative observation and, of course, will require uh, quite a bit more study to see uh, just exactly what the mechanism of this is. If anyone wants to find more about this? Well, I guess you can go to uh, the recent edition of Science Now. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science this week. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Professor David Goodstein from Caltech will talk about our diminishing oil supply. Stay tuned. back to Berkeley Rocks. The 20th century is often referred to as the century of the combustion engine. As hydrocarbons have been the fuel for these engines, our dependence on oil has only increased. With the continuing increase in demand for energy and oil and the limited supply of fossil fuels, the potential for a global crisis cannot be overstated. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks to talk about his concerns is Professor David Gustin from the California Institute of Technology. Dr. Gustin is Vice Provost and Professor of Physics of Caltech. Professor Gustin, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thank you for having me. You certainly written a very thought-provoking book, Out of Gas, The End of the Age of Oil. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Well, it turns out that in the history of the use of any mineral resource, it follows a kind of bell-shaped curve. It's thought out at zero, grows rapidly at first, then it slows down, reaches a peak, and then it declines forever after that. That's going to be true in the case of oil worldwide, just as it's been true for any other mineral resource. And there is reason to believe that that worldwide peak may very well occur sometime in the reasonably near future, perhaps within this decade or perhaps in the next. Uh, you mentioned this, this phenomenon called the Hubert's Peak. How exactly does this relate to the, uh, the declining uh, supply yes. of oil? Marion King Hubbard was a geophysicist, worked for a Shell Oil Company in Houston, and in the 1950s, when the United States was the world's greatest oil producer and much of our military and industrial might grew out of our giant oil industry, Hubbard, very much against the wishes of his employer, made public his prediction that U.S. Uh, oil supplies would peak around 1970 and decline forever after that. He was almost laughed out of the profession at the time because all oil geologists believed that discovery of oil would go on forever. But in fact, he turned out to be right. And so the whole phenomenon that we've been talking about, this idea of, of reaching a peak and declining, is referred to as Hubbard's Peak. So based on experience in the U.S., you believe you can also apply it for the entire world? Uh, a number of uh, geologists have tried to apply Hubbard's 
techniques uh, to the worldwide oil supply, and they've made predictions that vary from this year to later in this decade, as I say, maybe uh, the next decade at the latest. But not like, say, 100 years from now? Not Certainly not 100 years. There are other sources, uh, coal and shale. Uh, why can't we use these as, as viable alternatives? Well, you have to look carefully at each of the possible uh, alternatives. For example, I was in uh, Alberta a few weeks ago, and people there are very excited because they're now mining oil sands profitably because the price of oil is going up high enough, mm-hmm. so it's profitable to do that. And there's a lot of oil in the oil sands of Alberta. But oil in oil sands is a resource that you have to mine uh, and then extract the oil from the ore. And even if you can do it profitably, it's slow and it's energy intensive. And as you go through all the possible sources of oil, what's left behind in depleted oil fields, which is called heavy oil or oil sands or tar sands or other resources, uh, including coal, and especially including shale oil, you, you find that you run into enormous expense, so it'll become more expensive to buy the stuff. Uh, but in, in addition, it's expensive in energy, and oil shale may actually be energy negative. May may take more energy to get the stuff out of the uh, out of the, the rock uh, than you get out of the, the fuel that comes out. So you mentioned in your book that economists feel that once the price of oil or resource becomes expensive, there'll be a driving force to develop other technologies. But you feel that this might be kind of short-sighted. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about this. Economists tend to think that the universe is ruled by price, and once price is high enough, something else uh, will come along. But the laws of economics never trump the laws of physics. In order to examine the situation, you have to look at each possible substitute and ask, uh, is it a, a realistic one? Natural gas is a, is a good substitute. You can either chemically change uh, natural gas into a, a fuel that's liquid at room temperature, or you can use compressed natural gas as, as a fuel for, uh, for cars. But if we turn to that to substitute for the missing oil, the Hubbard's peak for natural gas is only one or two decades behind the one for oil, so it's a temporary fix at best. The longest-term fix is coal, because we are told that there's enough coal in the ground for hundreds or even thousands of years. But if we use coal as a substitute for oil, we first of all have to mine it many times faster than we're mining it now, because mm. we, we use twice as much oil as we use coal, so we would have to get a, a, a larger quantity of coal. But the conversion process to a liquid fuel is extremely inefficient. So you'd have to do it maybe five or six or seven times as fast as now, and that doesn't account for the growing world population and the fact there are 1.3 billion people in China who want to drive cars and, uh, and so on. There'll be much more and more pressure uh, to, to mine it faster and faster. And so saying that there's hundreds of years worth at the present rate uh, of use is meaningless. We'll be using it 10 times faster or more. And chances are that all fossil fuels, coal included, will run out uh, by the end of this century. So you've described the, uh, the best and worst case scenarios of Hubbard Peak. Could you elaborate on this? Well, the, what I call the best best case and worst case scenario is the, the worst case is that Hubbard's Peak comes along and we have a worldwide crisis comparable to what happened in 1973 when we had a, a brief artificial shortage of, of gasoline. Whatever shock comes along will be accompanied by worldwide inflation because not only will gasoline cost more, but everything that has to be transported will cost more more, and, and petrochemicals, which are a very large part of our, our lives, will cost more. If we don't pull ourselves together, get over that shock, and get other fossil fuels into production to substitute for the for the missing oil, then civilization will decay, and people all over the world will find themselves having to burn coal in huge quantities for space heating and for primitive industry, and that could throw the climate into a different state that's hostile to life altogether. And so, the worst case really means worst case. End of story. Best case, best case is that when the crisis comes along due to the peak, uh, it serves as a, a planet-wide 
wake-up call, and we get to work on le- learning how to live without fossil fuels. And I think that it's possible to do that uh, if we try hard enough. There's been a lot of controversy over nuclear energy. Obviously, there are dangers, but it also has no emissions. What are your views on nuclear power? Well, there are two kinds of nuclear power. Uh, one is the fusion kind, which we haven't been able to make work yet. If we ever succeed in doing that, it would probably resolve our problems. If there's enough fusion, there's enough uh, fuel of, of that kind around for, to last for a very long time. But it's been 25 years away for the past 50 years. People have said of, of both shale oil and uh, nuclear fusion that they are the energy sources of the future and always will be. The other kind of nuclear uh, power is the conventional uh, fission kind that we already use, mm-hmm. and that's a very well-established technology. People are afraid of it. They don't like it. They're reason to be afraid of it. We have to do it with, uh, with intelligence and with care. Nevertheless, when the oil starts running out, the need for it is likely to become a compelling reason to, to return to it. However, you have to be careful. You have to look at it quantitatively. That is, in order to make enough nuclear energy to replace all of the fossil fuel that we burn today, you would have to build 10,000 of the largest nucle- nuclear plants possible. 10,000. That's not impossible, but it is certainly a daunting task. And even if you did that, the known uranium reserves would last at that burn rate for only one or two decades. Okay, so there's also a Hubbard's Peak associated with it. And there's also a Hubbard's Peak associated with that, although we, we haven't gone nearly in, as far in exploiting uranium reserves as we have in exploiting oil reserves. And also there are other possibilities. Uh, I'm not When I say that there are only 10 or 20 years, I'm not taking into account the possibility of using breeder reactors. Mm-hmm. Breeder reactors make plutonium and that's very nasty stuff, so we've tried to stay away from that up to now. And there's also another possible nuclear fuel, which is called thorium, and we have no, very little experience with making reactors out of thorium. It's been said that in one hour, the, the Earth receives as much energy from the sun as all of society uses in one year. What do you think is the likelihood of uh, implementing photovoltaic technology or wind power as other renewable sources? So solar energy will certainly be an important part of our future. Photovoltaics, yes. If you wanted to, just to give a, a comparable number to what I just gave you for nuclear energy, if you wanted to replace all of the fossil fuel that we burn today with sunlight gathered by photovoltaics, you'd have to cover 220,000 square kilometers with photovoltaics. That's a, a land area about 500 kilometers or 300 miles on a side, mm-hmm. which is not unthinkable, but all of the photovoltaics made up to now would probably cover less than 10 square kilometers. So mm-hmm. it's, once again, not impossible, but a huge daunting task. You can also have wind power, but not all that much of it. There aren't so many places in the world where the wind blows steadily enough and strongly enough to be useful. It's become economically competitive with coal-fired power plants because of improved technology and because of tax breaks that are given for renewable sources. But people don't like wind farms. They're ugly and they're noisy. And as I say, there aren't so many places where they can be used profitably. So in some places like northern Europe, for example, where there's a lot of wind, it may someday become comparable to hydroelectric power. That's about it. Hydroelectric power is a form of solar power because the, the pressure of water at the bottom of the reservoir drives uh, a water turbine to, to generate electricity, and then mm. the sun makes the water evaporate and go back up into the watershed and uh, into the reservoir again. So that's, that is solar energy. Uh, but we've saturated that. We've used about as much of it as there is. There are dams everywhere. You can reasonably build a dam, just about. So you can't increase that to replace the, the, the missing oil. So those are the prospects for the solar power. One other, biomass. Grow things using sunlight. Biomass tends to be extremely inefficient. On the order of one-tenth of one percent of the sunlight will eventually get turned into chemical potential energy if you use biomass. Uh, you mentioned some myths about energy in your book. Uh, perhaps we could go over a couple of them. For example, global warming is bad. Uh, maybe that's misstated. We, we would not be alive uh, without global warming. <laughs> uh, if you took away all the greenhouse gases from the atmosphere so that the, the Earth radiated away the same amount of energy it receives from the sun, which is what it would have to, to, to do in uh, 
steady state, the temperature of the Earth would immediately drop to 255 kelvins, which is equal to zero degrees Fahrenheit. But at that temperature, all the water on the Earth would freeze, and the Earth would become much more reflective, absorb much less energy, and so the temperature would drop much further, and life could not exist, or at least advanced life could not exist under those conditions. On the other hand, if you increase the greenhouse effect to 100% on the Earth, it very likely would become like its near-twin Venus, which is a little closer to the sun, so it should be a little bit warmer, but its physics would certainly come in to have Earth-like temperature. Uh, it has a runaway greenhouse effect and a surface temperature hotter than molten lead. The Earth is precariously balanced in between. The pre-industrial greenhouse effect in the Earth was 88%, which means that of the energy radiated by the Earth's surface, 88% is absorbed by greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and radiated away in all directions, both up out into space, replacing the incoming uh, radiation, and back down to the Earth, warming the Earth to a very comfortable temperature of 287 kelvins, or about uh, 57 degrees Fahrenheit. And at that temperature, we uh, evolved, climbed down from the trees, and started drilling oil wells. It's been estimated that since the Industrial Revolution, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased about 44% or so. We still don't know what effect it may have. Do you feel that this is something that we should be truly concerned about? Well, it, it's true. The carbon dioxide content of the atmosphere has increased by about 100 parts per million, which is roughly 30% actually okay, since 30%. the beginning of the industrial era. But the effects are extremely complex. You put a little bit of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that makes the, the Earth a little bit warmer. That causes more water to evaporate. But water vapor itself is a powerful greenhouse gas, so that, mm -hmm. that is a positive feedback effect. It causes the polar ice cap to, to shrink a little bit, which decreases the reflectivity of the Earth and causes even more warming. So these are positive feedback effects. They amplify the effect of putting the carbon dioxide in. On the other hand, the water, the water vapor in the atmosphere condenses into clouds, and clouds have a cooling effect. The shrinking ice caps freshen the northern water, and that may reverse the Gulf Stream that warms Europe. So it could actually lead global cooling, and so on. All kinds of complicated things happen when you, put, when you change the composition of the atmosphere. $2 a gallon for gas. Is that really expensive? Well, $2 a gallon is about 50 cents a liter. Uh, we pay much more than that for bottled drinking water. Uh, we think $2 a, ga a gallon is too expensive, but when Europeans come to the United States, they're astounded to find that gasoline is just about the cheapest liquid you can buy here. <laughs> Let's talk about policy. Does President Bush's initiative to develop the hydrogen economy make sense? Hydrogen is made from fossil fuel, and it takes approximately the equivalent of six gallons of gasoline to make enough hydrogen to replace one gallon of gasoline in a hydrogen fuel cell-driven car. So in the short run, the answer is no, it does not make sense. In the long-term future, let it suppose we solve the fusion problem, and we have an absolutely unlimited source of power, uh, so that power simply is not a problem. Uh, that power is useless for transportation because it can only be made in great big fusion plants, so you need a fuel, something that, that can carry that power around locally. In that case, hydrogen or another fuel made from hydrogen, better off combining the hydrogen with carbon dioxide and making it, uh, methanol or something else. But a fuel made from hydrogen would make sense, yes. So the rest of the world is striving to reach the standards that the U.S. has reached, and this will certainly take a lot of energy, energy that many different parties are looking for. Um, what policies or regulations would you encourage so that we can uh, avoid potential conflicts? Well, that's a really a tough question. It is true that the United States has 5% of the world's population and uses 25% of the world's energy, and the rest of the world would like to be more like us. And the more the rest of the world gets to be more like us, the bigger the burden on, on energy becomes. But I don't think that we're going to get very far keeping the rest of the world in its place so that it doesn't use so much energy while we use all we can. And so we have to learn to conserve energy that is to conserve fuel, to reduce use of fuel, and put into place technologies that will help the rest of the world live better uh, without burning large amounts of fossil fuel. You're known as an advocate for science literacy. What advice do you have for people who want to uh, work in developing energy-related technologies or policies? My advice is get a, get a 
good technical education. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't really matter what field. I'm a physicist, and physics is not the best field for, for helping this problem. Other fields, such as geology, chemical engineering, chemistry, those people will make much more direct contributions to this. Uh, I guess we're running a bit out of time. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or the book? No, I'd just like to advise you to read the book. I think you'll profit from it. All right. Thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. Thank you. And we were just talking to David Goodstein, Vice Provost and Professor of Physics at the California Institute of Technology, about the eventual depletion of the supply of oil and its effects. His book, Out of Gas, The End of the Age of Oil, is now available online and in your bookstores. To find out more about him, you can also read his articles on science, technology, and energy at his website, www.its.caltech.edu backslash tilde dg. This is Berkeley Rocks you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out what laser stands for, so stay tuned. Rocks, and now here's Lynn Lee with the answer to last week's question of the week. What does laser stand for? Laser stands for light amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation, and basically that describes the entire process of how a laser works. Thank you, Lynn, for that answer. And now for this question of the week. How does the nose distinguish so many odors? If you know the answer or you think you know the answer, send an email to groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just stop and smell the roses. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Rocks. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. Uh, make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Berkeley Rocks, I'm Charles Lee. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, this is Lynn Lee. Or you can reach us on the web at www.groks.net. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Gordon Campbell. And this is Justin Hall from Links.net. You've been listening to another fine episode of Grox. Now tune in to Katie's Music. Music.